Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Abra Morawick. Abra is half of the team at Feisty Acres, located in the North Fork of Long Island, New York. Abra and her partner, Chris, grow and care for pasture-raised birds and specialty poultry. We chat today all about the different unique birds that they're raising on pasture, as well as discuss the topic of food sovereignty and how the pandemic brought to light a topic that many have faced for much longer than just the pandemic. We talk about so We have so much to chat about on today's episode, as well as Abra and I recorded an extended portion of the episode for the patrons of the Rural Woman podcast at tier 10 or higher. So if you would like to hear that extended portion, make sure you head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and you can learn more about becoming a patron member of the Rural Woman podcast. A quick, fun update for you from my farm here this week. If you're not following me on the Instagram, make sure you head on over there and you can find me at Wild Rose Farmer. I seem to have a lot of new critters here on the farm this week. I brought home two new baby bottle goats. They are about three weeks old and I am obsessed with them as well as if you don't know, I'm known somewhat as a cat rancher and we welcomed five new baby kittens to the farm. So it has been a very long week mixed with we're seeding for (laughs) our 2021 crops and all of the things. So I might be running on fumes, but this episode, my friends, is real good, real good. And I'm very excited to put it out there and for you guys to hear it. So make sure if you enjoy this episode, you take a screenshot and tag me and Abra over on the Instagram and give us some love because we are two tired ladies. (laughs) And speaking of cat ranching, you may have also seen on Instagram this week or on my email list that Shop Wild Rose Farmer, my online merchandise store, will be relaunching on Tuesday, May the 4th with all brand new designs that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with. I've been working with Randall from Randall Nicole Designs on rebranding some of my much loved favorite designs as well as launching some new ones. And I'm not going to give too many hints away, but there may be cat ranching apparel that is coming your way. So (laughs) make sure you guys stay tuned. You can head on over to Shop Wild Rose Farmer right now and all of my designs that will be retiring are deeply discounted. So make sure you grab those before they go away. The shop will be closing as of April 23rd and will be relaunching on Tuesday, May the 4th. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Abra. Good morning, Abra. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Caitlin? I am doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman Podcast today. I am excited to talk to you, girlfriend. I am. I'm here for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm also here for it. And thank you again for reaching out and having me on. I'm really excited. You know, we've we've 
Chris and I have both been listening to your podcast for some time now, so it feels kind of full circle to to be on it. So thank you. Yes. So for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, tell us about who you are and where you're from. So my name is Abra. I am the co-owner and operator of Feisty Acres Farm. We're in Southfold, New York. And for those of you wondering where that is, that's on Long Island, <laughs> as we like to say it. It's on the North Fork of Long Island. And we raise pasture-raised game birds and specialty poultry for direct sales to customers. So tell me how you got your start in agriculture. That is a long story, and I'll condense down into something as short as I possibly can. But if you had asked me, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, if I wanted to be involved in agriculture, I would have told you no. (laughs) I went to the Peace Corps in 2009 and was stationed in Mali, West Africa. And I went to the Peace Corps because I was interested in doing as well as perhaps working for the State Department or working in United States diplomacy. And the United States Peace Corps was a really great way to get your foot in the door. And growing up, I lived in various places in New York State. And my father and I had lived upstate for about six or seven years of my life. And when we lived upstate, we had a couple of acres and we grew vegetables. We had fruit trees and we kept a a modest flock of chickens and ducks, probably at its largest, about 25 birds in total. But the Peace Corps thought that that experience when I was a younger kid was enough for me to be an agricultural attention volunteer in the middle of Mali, West Africa. So, <laughs> so I was put in a community of 250 people. It was a village named Mugi, and it was a couple hours south of Timbuktu, which is a real place, in case anybody was wondering. And I basically threw myself into the lifestyle of the community there. And everyone was a farmer. Every family had a plot of land. Everyone grew millet and sorghum. Some folks had flocks of oats or sheep or herds of cattle. And since that was the way of life, I, you know, I basically just fell right into that. And I had a lot of experience raising crops, particularly grains and pulse crops, you know, without the use of machinery, usually with the use of animals such as oxen and mules, everything was hand harvested and hand dried. And as the days went by, I found that I really enjoyed this place life. <laughs> so after about two years of serving in Mogi, I came back in 2011 to the United States. And I sought out a career, perhaps in food justice. That was something I was particularly interested in. I wanted to be able to be involved in that. And unfortunately, you know, here in the United States, we were still recovering from the 2008 recession. And as I was applying to these local organizations and these NGOs based in New York City and in New York State, I was getting a lot of, we'd love to have you, uh, you know, you would be a unpaid intern for a year and then, you know, we'll think about hiring you full-time with the salary and all that. And the reason why they did that was because they could, because people were unemployed and they were desperate for work. And that was just something I couldn't do. (laughs) I needed to be able to make money. I needed to be able to support myself. So I joined AmeriCorps, which is basically the American version of the Peace Corps. 
and I worked at an urban farm in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. It was called the Brooklyn Rescue Mission. It's still in operation. And it was a small urban farm that grew food and kept chickens and would offer that in their weekly food pantry offerings. And through them, I had a lot of opportunities to go to events and conventions. And I went to a just food convention in New York City. And I met a farmer from the North Fork of Long Island. Her name was Eve Kaplan Walbrack. She runs Garden of Eve Farm. They're a certified organic vegetable farm in Riverhead. They have about 80 acres. And she was looking to hire people for the season. And I put my application in. I was approved. I was asked to come out to interview in Riverhead. And I drove out from Brooklyn, because that's where I'm from. And I drove out, and it's about two and a half hours out. And I remember driving down the highway and getting off the Long Island Island Expressway and getting deeper and deeper towards the end of Long Island. And I had no idea that there was this rich agricultural world on Long Island. I thought it was just sprawling suburbia. But once you get east of Riverhead, there's there's vegetable farms, there's potato farms, there's people who, there's a duck farm out here. There's all sorts of agriculture going on out here. And so I went, I volunteered accidentally for about a full day. My interview was only supposed to last, you know, about an hour or so. And I ended up working in the greenhouse. I ended up harvesting kale and chard in their hoop houses. And at the end of the day, after working about six hours, I was offered a job and I took it. And that was, what was that, 2012. That was the spring of 2012. And, and that's basically how I ended up here on Long Island. I worked for a bunch of farms out here. Chris and I actually met at Garden of Ease. We were apprentices. And for a while, we were competing for the same job. So when we first met, we weren't entirely friendly with each other. Um, so... <laughs> So we were we were in competition a lot of the time, and I think that us being forced to work together over the season really kind of cemented our relationship. So from 2012 to about 2015, Chris and I worked and managed other people's farms here on Long Island. Chris worked for the oldest fruit orchard here in New York State called Wickham's Fruit Farm. I worked for a local poultry farm and then also worked for another small organic vegetable farm. And then in 2015, you know, Chris and I felt as though we were spinning our wheels. We were working for other people and that was fine, but we felt as though we really wanted to have a business of our own. We had a lot of different ideas and there's a lot of opportunity out here on the east end of Long Island to create a business if, you know, you know what the market is looking for. And so in 2015, that's when we really buckled down, made a business plan. I had been working for another poultry farm a couple of years, and I was doing a farmer's market for them. And all they did was chickens. And so I used to have customers come up and ask me, hey, do you guys sell quail? Do you guys sell turkeys? Do you guys have duck eggs? Do you guys have quail eggs? Do you guys have guinea hens? Do you sell Cornish game hens? And you just get hit over the head so many times until you go, holy shit, that's, there, there's a market for this. There are people who want this and there's a them out here that would make it a viable business for us. And so in 2015, I approached my boss 
who owned a biofilm organic farm. It was a vegetable farm, a 14-acre vegetable farm. But he only farmed about seven acres of it at a time, at a time because he would allow his fields to rest every other year. And I said, hey, Phil, you know, <laughs> you know, hey, why don't we um, can I lease some of your land that you're not using to run a couple hundred birds over? And, you know, that would be great because we will add organic matter to your soil. While it's resting, you can plant your cover crops. My birds can eat your cover crops, so you don't have to mow it. You don't have to waste fuel mowing it down. And he was totally game for that. And that's basically how we started. Was in 2015, I rented a couple acres from Phil, and I tested the Mart waters. We were mostly growing for Thanksgiving that year, and we raised 150 quail that year for Thanksgiving, and they sold out immediately. And some more quail for Christmas, about 250, and they also sold out immediately. And so Chris and I said, okay, well, let's do this. And in 2016, not only did we do quail, we did quail, we did guinea hens, we did silky chickens, and we did partridge. In 2017, we added heritage turkeys. In 2018, we added heritage chickens and heritage ducks. And then this coming year, for the first time, we're going to be adding commercial hybrid breeds of birds, specifically chickens, red broilers, and also broad-breasted white turkeys. So it started really small. We are currently on 11.2 acres here in Southhold. I lease land from the Peconic Land Trust. They're an organization out here that helps preserve land for not only farming, but they also help preserve natural waterways and landscapes and open spaces because we are on Long Island and suburban sprawl is an issue. And one of the best ways to combat urban sprawl is to make sure that there's land available for farmers to farm. So that's what we're doing. We don't actually own any of the land that we farm. We lease everything. We lease the barn. And they also lease our house. So it's kind of an odd business model because a lot of the other farmers that I talk to own everything that they have. But we're young. We're only in our early 30s. Farming is our first career. So we're not second career farmers. We didn't have a viable first career where we can invest, you know, a million or so dollars into property. And we didn't inherit any land from our families who are in farming. My family's not in farming and neither is Chris's. So this is really, truly a first generational farm. So yeah, I feel like I missed a bunch of stuff, but... That's okay. That's why I'm here to break all of the wonderful things down that you just said. I've been taking notes like crazy. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, it's great. It's so good. And like you said, like it is such like a long road to where like you are today and you've done so many amazing things. And so like, let's, let's go back to the beginning. So like you're talking about coming back to the U.S. and basically being told yeah. that you you can volunteer for a job in food sovereignty, which yeah. I just think is like so ironic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I absolutely couldn't believe that that was what I was being told. I, it, it was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, you know, I'm very lucky in that I've never had to know what it's like to not have food, but when I was being told that, I, I, I absolutely couldn't believe it. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think in 2020, I think food sovereignty was something that was really brought up. And for people who didn't know what it was pre-pandemic, 
Yeah. Like, let's talk about that. Like, tell us more about food sovereignty and like what that looks like in the area that you are in and like areas that you've been to. Well, in my area, this is a very rich, well-to-do area. So food sovereignty is not something that comes up a lot. The only places that food sovereignty is actually discussed in any which way would be probably larger towns here in Greenport and in Riverhead, where you have higher densities of population and also higher densities of population of people who are not rich or who don't make a lot of money, people who work in the service industry, people who work in the agriculture industry. A lot of people don't talk about how even Chris and I, when we were apprentices, we were not paid a fair wage for the work that we put in. And the only reason as to why we probably worked these jobs was to gain experience and also to gain social capital. There's a lot of people who can't afford to do that. The only reason we were able to afford to do that was because we lived, you know, we lived without TV. We have a very simple cell phone plan. But you can't tell that to a family of four people you know, living, let's say, in Riverhead or Greenport or even here in Southfold and say, oh, you know, you can buy that, that certified organic chicken or you can buy that, you know, you can buy that specialty produce over there if you just give up, you know, your iPhone or if you just give up, you know, your car or if you just... People who say, if you just, to people who don't have a lot of money drive me absolutely insane because a lot of these people don't understand what it's like to not have a lot of money. So food sovereignty is, to be quite honest, something that's really not talked about a lot out here because we don't have a lot of people out in the open talking about how they can't afford certain things. Chris and I are always grappling and struggling with being able to sell to people who don't have a lot of money because we are a very small farm, so we have to charge a certain price for our products in order for us to make money. The only way that we would be able to drive the price of our product down is, one, if we got exponentially larger, or two, if we created a co-op of some sort with other farms. And that way, we would have more purchasing power of resources. If we had more purchasing power of resources, such as building materials, feed, grading costs, we'd be able to drive our prices down and reach a wider audience. But unfortunately, I don't see that happening here in this area for quite some time. The only way that we are able to actually sell to people who maybe can't afford our stuff you know, on a regular basis is, I'm sure you, you saw that we sell in New York City and we sell through Grow NYC's Green Market. One of the best things about the Grow NYC Green Market is that they allow farmers like me to accept EBT and food stamps from people who want to buy my products, and I don't have to do any additional paperwork. And that's really that's really wonderful. I love that people are able to purchase poultry and eggs from us on a regular basis if they want to with their benefits because we want our food to be able to go to people who not only really want it but also really need it. It's just really difficult as a small farm to be able to sell things at a certain price where everybody can buy it because we're we're just not at a point where we're able to do that. 
we're at a point right now where we're still paying some of our startup debt off. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to do that is, it's really difficult. I'm very inspired by Chris Newton down in the Chesapeake Bay with what he is doing. And I've been following him for, for quite some time. And while I don't agree with everything that, you know, he talks about, I think that his model is going to be really the only model that works if we want young people to get into farming and actually farm meaningfully. And what I mean by farming meaningfully is we're able to not only farm and make a living, but we're also able to sell to people, not just people with the means, but sell to everybody. And I had, I really hope that he can make it work down there because that could be a really wonderful model for farmers like me to follow in different areas of the country and hopefully the world. For sure. Well, and like you've said, like, it's just, it's such a delicate dance between providing food for everyone and also being able to afford for yourself to buy food, right? Like it would be nice if we, we could do this for everyone, but at the end of the day, your farm is a business and your business needs to be viable Mm -hmm. in order for you and Chris to eat. So I'm so happy to hear about the food market that you guys are able to attend and that people who are using food stamps are able to buy quality products because, you know, that's not always an option for everyone everywhere. And I think that's such a great idea for other food markets and farmers markets to take note of that, you know, there are people that don't have something to give up yeah. in order to be able to afford the prices that farmers need to sell for. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, if you would have asked me five years ago about, and, and about, you know, let's say what people call factory farms or CAFO farms, five years ago, I would have thrown them under the bus. Five years ago, I would have said they're the most terrible thing ever and we need to get rid of them. And this is just a testament of what experience and age does to you, especially when you work in your field. I now have regular conversations with people saying, you know, people who buy stuff from me, let's say, and they say, oh, I'd much rather buy from you than, you know, from the supermarket where the chickens are, you know, they're farmed like this and they're farmed like that. And I say, well, you know, you're lucky to have that choice. We're all going to have that choice. And so I think as I've gotten older and as I've had more larger farms, because they're providing food to people who don't have as much money as people who are to me. And it would be awful. It would be terrible for us to expect people without the means to purchase products for me just because it's quote unquote better. People need to be able to feed their families. And so these larger farms are, they have a place in the country. They have a place feeding people. And, it's been kind of a funny thing to reckon with as a small farm who used to really throw the larger farms under the bus. But as my business has grown itself, if I have grown myself, I completely understand that there is a huge place for big farms. And honestly, thank God for them. Because if we just relied upon farms like me, there would be a lot of people out there going hungry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is a great thing for everyone to recognize and really let sink in because like you're talking to a large grain farmer here who would love to have, you know, smaller markets and all of the things, but it's just not there. But at the same time, we know that we're feeding 
a quantity of people. We're feeding them quality products yeah. still, yeah. but it is of a bigger quantity, right? So yeah, that is, that's a yeah, good, absolutely. That's such a good little nugget yeah. there. So good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think it's important and I, I really truly feel that because I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in America, we have had a huge disconnect from agriculture within the past 60 to 70 years, you know, 60 or 70 years ago, people, either someone directly in their family was a farmer or they had a cousin who was a farmer or an uncle or an aunt who was a farmer. And so they understood what it took to get food from the field to the table. And I really think that due to that disconnect, a lot of people are able to romanticize farming and particularly romanticize farming and in reality they just have no idea what it takes to feed a country and what it takes to feed a world and so you know thank you Caitlin to you and your family for feeding you know thousands of people you know I'm only feeding maybe hundreds of people on a good month <laughs> well we are happy to provide you with all of your organic hemp needs here on the Dubin Farms <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can help support the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Woman podcast on Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a membership-based platform that helps fund and support creators like me to create and produce content like this that you all love. New to the Rural Woman podcast, Patreon is ad-free listening and patron-only bonus content and exclusive episodes. Learn more and join the patron gang today at patreon.com slash the rural woman podcast. So let's talk more specifically about what you're producing on the farm and the different birds that you're producing. Tell us more about the different breeds and species of birds that you have on there. Because like you said, it's not a regular typical chicken farm. You guys have a lot of different unique birds. Yeah, we have a lot of different unique birds because that's what the markets are calling for. We have plenty of farmers out here who are raising chickens, specifically Cornish cross broilers, which are a commercial hybrid chicken. And they grow very, very quickly on very low rain, and you're able to turn them over quickly and make profit from them, which is great. But there's so many people out there already doing that. Chris and I wanted to do something different because, again, like I said, when I was working for the other chicken farmer, people were looking for things that were familiar to them from home. So we have a lot of customers that are Latino, Eastern European, Asian, people who maybe were not born here but now live here in America and are Americans, but they are looking for food that is familiar. And a lot of the breed that we raise are familiar to them. So we started with quail because they're small, they're easy to manage, and there was a huge demand for quail and quail eggs locally here on the North Fork. And now I find in the city because almost every other culture regularly eats these tiny, fat, delicious birds. We started raising guinea hens and silky chickens. The guinea hens are originally a West African game bird, but now they're pretty well cemented in American and European agriculture. 
And they're similar in size and shape to a chicken, but their behavior is not all like chickens. Any of you guinea hen owners out there listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. They're skittish, they're loud. <laughs> if you are not a guinea hen, they don't want anything to do with you. But they're great at eating pests, particularly ticks, and they're delicious. So you raise those guys. They're silky chickens, as I said before. They are a black-skinned, grainy chicken with black bones. And these guys are very highly sought after by folk from Korea, Japan, and China. They're used a lot in soups and stocks. Also raised heritage breed chickens. And what I mean by heritage is, is they are not hybrid chickens. These are chicken breeds that have long storied histories, either here in the United States or in another country. And they always are able to mate naturally. So a male and a female, let's say, barred rock, which is a heritage breed. If you mate a male barred rock with a female barred rock, you will get a barred rock. That's not the case with a lot of commercial hybrid chickens like the Cornish cross. If you mate a Cornish cross male or a Cornish cross female, you will not get a Cornish cross chicken. You will get a genetic throwback of one of the breeds that was used to make that chicken. That's one of the things that sets heritage chickens and poultry apart is that they breed true. They also are able to breed naturally. So a lot of the hybrid chickens are usually artificially inseminated, which is super duper important to make sure that, you know, there is efficiency in breeding these birds. Heritage chickens are also very good at foraging. They thrive on pasture, and that is why their eggs are usually, usually have a darker yolk because they're obtaining more carotenoids from green vegetation. And those carotenoids are usually deposited in the yolks and fat of the chicken. So that's why when people usually cook up my heritage breed chickens, they remark on the yellow fat. And it's because my chickens typically graze more than your commercial hybrid chickens. We raise chucker partridge, which is another game bird. That's a game bird that's native to the Middle East, but it was brought here in the 1800s by colonialists. And they were released all over the western part of the United States. They're mainly a hunting bird, but we raise them here on the farm because there is a big demand for them. We also raise turkeys just for Thanksgiving. We raise heritage turkeys, and we also raise broad-breasted white turkeys. And then we also raise red broilers, which is a commercial breed of chicken. Chris and I started raising the commercial breeds of chickens and turkeys just this year for 2020, mainly because we had a huge influx of people moving out here on the North Fork during the pandemic, a lot of people moving out to the city. And not everybody wants a heritage chicken because, number one, they're very expensive to grow. They usually take four or five months to reach market weight, whereas your commercial hybrid chicken, the ones that we raise, usually take eight to nine months to reach market weight. So it's a huge difference in the amount of time and seed that we have to put into them. So it's a cheaper chicken, which makes it more available to people. Um, and it has a different taste. You know, they have more breast meat. I would say that they're a little softer in texture. I would say more tender. I would say more soft. So, you know, it's just, we're raising chickens for a wider range of people now and raising turkeys for a wider range of people now. I think that as a farmer and a business owner, you know, being stubborn about certain things can be more of a hindrance than a virtue. And I've especially learned this farming during a pandemic. But we want to raise heritage breeds of turkeys and chickens. And I think one of the best ways to help a 
species survive is to make sure that there is as much biodiversity within the species as possible. And so if we're purchasing chicks regularly from small hatcheries that are raising heritage breeds, that will encourage them to keep doing that so that the biodiversity of the breed remains high. Because God forbid something catastrophic happens in the poultry industry where we lose, let's say, the genetic lines of the Cornish Cross or the Red Broilers or the Freedom Rangers, we'll be able to recreate those as long as we keep intact the biodiversity of all of the other breeds in the chicken world or the turkey world. So that's the big reason why we do the heritage breed. They're great on pasture, and we want to encourage biodiversity within the species. That's very cool. And so much good knowledge about the chickens. Like I had no idea about the breeding. If you bred two of them, then it'll come out a different one. Like it's, that's so interesting to me. Like, yeah, that's called a terminal hybrid. That's called, the specific term for that is called terminal hybrid. And the Cornish crosses and like the red broilers are typically terminal hybrids. So tell us more about what your typical year looks like in raising birds and like what your rotations are like and right. all of the things. <laughs> so not so not 2020. No, like let's, let's do, like, yeah, let's do a typical <laughs> year and then we'll move on to 2020. So in July, so like a typical year for us, we usually start brewing chicks in our brooder in the barn, usually mid to late February. And that's usually our new flock of Layer hens, and you know, we get a start on our guinea hens and some of our meat birds usually in February. And then we are brooding and raising and harvesting meat birds basically May through Thanksgiving. And then the rest of the year, we concentrate upon our egg laying chickens, which is our egg laying birds, I should say, which are heritage chickens, our heritage ducks, which I forgot to talk about in the prior segment, that's okay, and a quail. So, you know, typically our meat season is from May to Thanksgiving, and then we have eggs almost all year round. And it provides us with a year-round income. We have large flocks of chickens. Like, as for right now, you know, I've bought about 258 chickens just for egg laying. I have 300 quail just for egg laying, and we have about 100 ducks just for egg laying. And so when our season begins, when we start brooding, you know, meat birds, sometimes we're taking care of upwards of 2,500 birds during the season. It's a lot for two people to handle, but we have been able to streamline our farm and our pasture movements in a way that make it really easy for two people to work. So, and that's from our experience from working on other people's farms. One of the best things about working on other people's farms for, you know, a few seasons is that not only do you know what to do, but you also know what not to do, which is just as important. So, you know, our typical day, say, in the spring, we're usually up at 4.30, we're at the barn at 5 o'clock, and we open up the layer hens, the quail, the ducks, we feed everybody, we give everybody water, we eat birds, we feed and water them. We had goats this year, so you know, we feed and water them. And then we're usually done with chores at about 10 or 11 o'clock. So in the spring and the fall, when the weather is, is nice and temperate, we are usually doing projects to either boost our infrastructure or repairing things from the previous year. So like, for instance, in the spring, when we're done with our chores, maybe we'll be building out another coop for some layer chickens, or we'll be cleaning out brooders for the next set of chicks that are coming in. 
in the summer when it's super duper hot, we are typically just doing chores and getting the hell out of the sun <laughs> at about 11 or 12 o'clock. And then we don't really go back out and do chores until, you know, maybe three or four o'clock. And in the winter, it's typically the same. So during that downtime, usually in between, you know, morning and afternoon chores, I'm doing everything else and Chris is doing everything else because we are just a two-person operation. So I'll be doing administrative work such as accounting and bookkeeping, ordering chicks, scheduling slaughter dates here on the farm, scheduling tours, responding to customer emails, responding to CSA emails, working on the website, opening up the shop, closing down the shop, you know, issuing refunds, writing a newsletter, keeping up on social media. So, you know, our time between morning chores and evening chores is usually filled up with all of that. And while it might not seem like work to some people, it is the behind the scenes work of the farm. And so that has to be done as well. And, you know, thankfully we're able to do that with just two people. That is a lot of things for two people to do. And like we mentioned <laughs> before, like people have this romantic idea of farming, but like, okay, it's great to do these chores and feed everything. But you also have to do the business end behind the business. Oh, yeah. So for me, at least that's not the romantic side of farming at all. No, it's not. It's infuriating. It is a struggle. It's dealing with people who don't agree with your lifestyle. We get a lot of emails from people saying, we shouldn't be raising birds for food and you know you have to respond to those people in you know a measured manner because I want people to live their lives however they want to live them. I think that's one of the greatest things about our country. But I also don't want, you know, people to be trying to exact their lifestyle on me. And so that's always a chance of having to respond to people who don't think what we're doing is right. And yeah, writing the emails every doing the bookkeeping, doing our, we do our own taxes. I mean, we do have to insane. But, <laughs> but you guys you are know, insane. Thing. We are insane. But here's why we're insane. Because we were on that end of being farm workers and apprentices where we were not paid enough to live out here. We don't want to perpetuate that cycle. And so until Chris and I make enough money to pay somebody else a living wage out here. I don't think it's fair to employ somebody on our farm if we can't pay them what they need to be paid in order to live a comfortable life out here. So that's why we are still, you know, doing that. And like I said, we're not second career farmers. We're first career farmers. We knew from the get-go that we were going to have to do things that a lot of other people out here on the east end of Long Island don't typically have to do. And that's okay because we're, you know, not only are we farming because we wanted to have our own business, but we want to have a legacy. You know, Chris and I do want to have children someday and be able to pass it down. And we want to be able to pass down certain values to our community and to our children that stewarding the land is important and taking care of animals is important and feeding your community and being a part of that community is important. And so when you remember those values and those, those reasons as to why you are farming, it makes the hard days of doing your taxes and sitting at a computer for eight hours a little bit each year. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. 
You have heard me tell you all about the amazing benefits that come with being a patron of the Rural Women Podcast through Patreon, but I wanted to share with you a few testimonials from the patron gang themselves. Patron Annabelle writes, I became a patron so I could enrich my knowledge of the diverse world of agriculture. Although I live and breathe farming and ranching, there is a lot I don't know. I believe learning that how and why people do things will help me improve being a better rancher myself. This podcast also helps with the feeling of isolation. I hear the voices of ladies from all walks of life living a similar life to my own. This type of outreach is not only vital for us in the business, but those wanting to learn about the people growing and raising their food. I'm well aware that podcasts take an outstanding amount of time and money to create, so I felt like I, as well as others, can make a small monthly contribution that can help make a long-lasting podcast. Join Annabelle and the rest of the patron gang in supporting the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Women podcast starting at $2 a month over on Patreon. Visit wildrosefarmer.com slash Patreon to learn more. So let's move on to the year of 2020. It's in our past now. <laughs> let's talk about what 2020 oh, meant for you and Chris on Feisty Acres and hopefully never have to experience again. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I, like I had before, this, this season has really, it was very challenging, but I also think it was full of opportunities. We had an opportunity to experience about a decade's worth of just, we made the choice to accept it and deal with it and learn from it and roll with the punches. Even though the punches basically came like every week, we never were afforded a break. Usually we have, we always have animals to take care of and we have hundreds of animals to take care of, but we usually have a break where we're not processing birds for meat. And we usually have a break from, you know, Thanksgiving until like, let's say April or May. And this year was not the case. We saw kind of the writing along January when this was starting to happen in, in, in China, when the virus seemed to be as though it was expanding and, and going to other places outside of Wuhan. And Chris said, you know, this, this could come here. And if it comes here, we are going to probably have to be producing a lot more than what we normally produce. He had called it. He had called it. <laughs> he was like, oh, it was absolutely sure to me. And I wrote him off. I said, oh, no, absolutely not. And I was like, well, we found it's not coming over here. And, you know, lo and behold, we were shut down in March. People did not want to go into the grocery store. They were coming to the farmer's markets in droves because the farmer's markets were open air. People were having a hard time getting their hands on eggs for a little while. They were... You know, we were selling out of eggs every week. We still sell out of eggs every week. That's nothing new. And because the pandemic was happening and because people, their interest in spending their money locally was growing, Chris and I decided to take advantage of that opportunity and say, okay, well, why don't we produce, you know, some quicker growing birds to be able to harvest a little bit earlier so that we can kind of get a start on our poultry season a little bit this year because people want it. There, there are more and more customers locally and in New York City that are looking for it. Let's get it to them. And that's what we did. And so instead of having that nice break, you know, we only had a break for about you know, two months before we were processing again. And that 
has taken a toll on us in terms of like our body. We're tired <laughs> because again, we, we do all of our own processing. And as the season progressed, we had kind of more and more roadblocks being put in our way. The United States Postal Service was experiencing, you know, a lot of difficulties. And because of that, we lost 500 and 600 chicks in the mail. A lot of people don't know this, but in the United States, the only way poultry growers get their chicks in the mail and they get it through the United States Postal Service, we had our egg-laying hens stolen from us. Because that was another interesting byproduct of the pandemic. Because people were unable to find eggs at their local grocery stores for a couple of weeks, people thought that they would just buy chicks <laughs> from their own chickens in their backyard. And so we had a lot of countries that we worked with on out of chips, which they had never done before. So chips, specifically egg-laying hens, were in high demand. And so in May, you know, there were a lot of people on our and there were also a lot of people out here that weren't on our and were probably very desperate. And, you know, we're right on a main road, and we don't have a fence. And so somebody just came and stole a bunch of our egg-laying hens and sold them for a really nice profit to people who wanted backyard chickens. We, you know, we filed a police report. You know, that's a lot of eggs that we need to be out of. So that kind of messed up our season. We were very lucky, though, in that we had a home set up a GoFundMe campaign to help us recoup the losses of our bird story, to help us buy new chicks. And also to help us purchase a camera and security system for our barn and our industry pasture. So we had some terrible things happen to us this year, but we also had some really wonderful things happen to us this year. You know, it just we felt like we were working nonstop, and we're still working nonstop. Our season typically ends in Thanksgiving, but ends at Thanksgiving. But we are now working well past. Thanksgiving into Christmas and into New Year's, and we are going to have to force ourselves to take a break after New Year's because we uh, we need to rest. We need to take a little bit of a break before we start, you know, raising chicks again and processing meat again. So it has been has been an eye opening season for sure, and it has forced us to do things such as raise commercial hybrid birds because that's what people want. When people don't have as much money anymore to spend on a heritage chicken. So we want to be able to offer people, you know, a cheaper alternative. But, you know, they can also know that that bird was raised well. And that seems to matter to a lot of people. I don't know. I feel like my explanation of 2020 feels as scattered as 2020 was. You couldn't have done it any better. (laughs) (laughs) I really, I mean, there's a so much things that happened. I mean, one of the best things that happened, though, like I said, was being able to purchase our van. A lot of people don't know this because we never really told them it, but Chris and I ran our farm for five years with one vehicle, and it was a pickup truck. It's a 1999 GMC pickup truck. And when I would go to market twice a week, Chris didn't have a vehicle. So we would have to drop off food and water for birds you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday before I packed up to market. And now I have a van and he can have the truck and our life is infinite right now. That was like one of the best things that happened to us this year was that we were able to purchase this van. And we probably would have never been able to purchase this 
understand unless we were offered the deal that we were offered due to the pandemic. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's small little wins throughout the whole year, right? Like it, it was a dumpster fire, but like you said, like there's, there was some good that came out of 2020 and moving forward, I think people will adopt and keep the habits that they had to have in 2020 due to what it was. So that's, that's good news for people like you and Chris who have these smaller markets and have built these relationships with your customers and your continued customers. So I think it's going to be okay, I think. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, you know, if nothing else, you know, this year is going to offer people hopefully opportunities to be able to experiment with different markets. People are spending more and more of their money locally more than ever. And, if you are able to and you are financially capable of doing so, you know, make your own market and make your own job and take advantage of that because that's really going to be, I think, the way forward for a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. So what is the plan for you and Chris and Feisty Acres in the future? Well, it's, you know, the plans are always ever-changing. We will most uh, our long-term plan is, you know, unfortunately, unless the real estate market changes, Chris and I have to move away from the North Fork of Long Island, which is heartbreaking for us because we are so entrenched in this community. But land is unaffordable. Housing is unaffordable. It's expensive to operate a business here. And I don't have a couple million dollars to drop on a piece of property in a barn and a house. So Chris and I are currently saving up and prospecting other New York State and even other states here in the United States to purchase our final our final destination, so to speak. <laughs> That's always been something that has been a call for Chris and I is that, you know, with the license real estate is through the research here on the eastern island. We have people fleeing New York City and coming out here to start the the already high prices of land even higher. So it's been kind of hard, but we've come to terms with the fact that we will probably not be able to stay out here. So that's why everything that we build in the future is highly mobile or highly collapsible or temporary. We don't build any permanent infrastructure for that reason. But, you know, going forward in the near future, we are hoping to raise more egg layers particularly chickens and ducks. There's huge, ever-increasing demand for eggs. And we are also going to be raising more commercial hybrid breeds of chickens and turkeys because, again, we want to be able to offer birds to a wider audience. But we are still going to be raising, you know, our more unusual birds, such as our quail and our guinea hens and our heritage chickens and silky chickens and partridge. Because there's still a demand for it there, too. And we are also hoping within the near future, depending upon where we land, we would, because we have so much experience in processing birds for meat, uh, we have a lot of friends that actually ask us to process birds for them, people who have small flocks in their backyards, et cetera. We're known for the list of our birds, and we, you know, I hate to brag, but, you know, we, we our birds are beautiful when we're done with them, when we dress them. So we have been able to build our reputation off of that. And we would like to have a, you know, a processing facility here or, you know, wherever it is that we land. And we would like to be able to staff it 
displaced people from the local community and be able to process poultry for not only ourselves, but for other farms surrounding us. Because building a farming facility is very, very expensive and it's not easy to run. But Chris and I have a lot of experience doing that and we would very much like to be able to offer that service to other people. So that's, that's something, you know, within our five to ten year plan that we would like to have, you know, kind of established and, and going. Those are very big goals and very big dreams. And if I know any two people yeah. that can do those things, it's you and Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh, Avra, it's been so great chatting with you. My last question for you is, what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? The most rewarding part about being a farmer is that I can look back at the end of the day and see what I've accomplished. Whether that's something big or something small, the fact that I can turn around and actually see it, I can touch it, I can smell it, I can hear it, is extraordinarily satisfying and rewarding for me. And I don't think that there are many other vocations out there that allow you that same satisfaction. Truth. That is so good. So good. Yeah. Abra, thank you (laughs) so much for chatting with me today all the way up on the hill in the barn to make the Rural Woman podcast yep. possible. <laughs> yep. Caitlin, thank you again so much. As many listeners know, like I talk to people in the stick of all over the place. So cell phone reception and internet reception is not always possible or the greatest. So <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's fine. It's on brand, man. It's on brand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Authentic. I think that's what they call it. So yeah. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? We have um, a website. It's www.fifiacons.com. That's F-E-I-S-T-Y-A-C-R-E-S.com. I am very active on Instagram. That would be my tag is at Acres. And we also have a Facebook it's there, but I'm not super active on it, but it's there. And you can find us at Feisty Acres Farm. And that's, that's it. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> I will link all of those in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Honestly, like how much more can you do? You already do your taxes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I will link oh, all Lord. of those in the show notes so people can find you, connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Caitlin. Cheers. I hope you're well at Burial Birth. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.